to the book of Romans this morning, chapter 1. We begin this morning a study of the book of Romans. If you're with us this morning and without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and just wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand, and if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today, and begin to mark it up, even today, and uh, all the way through the book of Romans. I hadn't intended to uh, enter into Romans. I had something else in mind, and then in the final weeks of Acts, it's just uh, dried up the way that those things are and how the Lord does that. And anywhere I went, all I could see was Romans and uh, devotional life and anywhere. So, and, and just that way that the Lord makes things clear, at least for me, uh, Romans is where we're supposed to go to. I don't, uh, that's not an apology, by the way. Um, I'm very happy to be in Romans and excited about what it is that's going to happen. Uh, but I do say that also, that if, if it ends up a disaster in the first three two weeks, I I reserve the right to uh, abandon it for my first thought, um, but it won't. Two verses this morning, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, and he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, neither am I, are you? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this book that it is in our Bibles. We thank you for what it has meant to us through the years, those of us who've walked with you long years. And we pray that you would give us a fresh look and a fresh um, seeing it and it's all of its multifacetedness that you would deepen our understanding of it and thus our worship and thanksgiving to you. We pray for each person that stands before you now for whom this is the first time they will even read the book uh, or to study it, that you would do a great miracle yeah, by your Holy Spirit in their lives and in our lives as well. Thank you for the book of Romans. And Father, we thank you for your Son and the idea of salvation that was in your heart and that you produced a gospel for mankind, for us individually, and now to explore that and to explore you as we do so. We ask that you would bless us today and bless us in the coming months, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Paul's letter to the church at Rome has been called uh, the most profound work in existence. And uh, I certainly wouldn't argue with that. On a lot of levels, I, I would agree with it, but it certainly is a true statement, if for no other reason than that it addresses the most important subject in the world, and that is God's plan and provision of salvation for mankind. Uh, some of you may or may not be aware of the fact it always helps me when I begin to read the book of Romans or to study it to remember the incredible impact that the book of Romans has had upon your life as you sit here in the room if you've never read it. The impact that it has had upon men and women through church history 
and uh, that influence of the book upon them reaching right into this room and into each of our lives as Christians here uh, this morning, how it's been used by God to uh, impact some of the mightiest servants of God in church uh, history, birthing uh, revivals, uh, birthing national revivals, international revivals, individual revivals in the last uh, 2,000 years of history. Famously, it was Augustine who was an early uh, church father in the fourth century. Before he became a Christian, he was a very brilliant philosopher, very brilliant thinker, uh, but he lived a very degrading, immoral life. And at the time that he became born again, he was teaching rhetoric in a university in Milan, and he happened to go to a church that was located in Milan that was uh, pastored by a man by the name of Bishop Ambrose. He didn't go there for the content of the messages. He went there for the rhetoric. He went there uh, to study the man's style of speaking, the logic by which he uh, delivered the Word of God, had no intention of becoming uh, a Christian at all. But over time, he began to be impacted by a, a deepening understanding of the Bible and of the Christian faith as a result. And then sometime in the year of 386, he was sitting in an outdoor garden, and he's uh, agonizing over the, his lifestyle, the person that he's become, the sin that he is uh, engaged in and uh, captive to and uh, concerned for his direction in life and so forth. And as he's sitting in the privacy of that patio, uh, it wasn't so private that he couldn't hear a child's voice that was singing uh, nearby. And the young girl's voice was singing. The words were, pick it up and read it. Pick it up and read it, she sang over and over again. And then Augustine, he realized that this song might be a command to open up the Bible and to read the Scriptures. So he went into the house, and he found uh, a copy of the Bible there, and uh, he read the first passage that he opened up to, and it was Paul's letter to the Romans, and Augustine read on that morning, uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy, rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. And having read that single passage there from uh, the book of Romans, he uh, received this witness of the Holy Spirit to the truth of that passage, and that witness of the Spirit flooded his heart, and he turned totally from his life of sin at that moment, and he put his faith in the Lord. He became born again, as Jesus describes it, and experienced the power of God uh, to salvation. That supernatural witness of the Holy Spirit to the Word of God that happens in the heart that is uh, open to this witness. It was later as he would reflect upon his his experience here, that he, uh, Augustine, uh, wrote the prayer that he was most famous for and is most famous for uh, even today, though his writings exist to this day and are, are broadly read, but by a diminishing 
group of people by virtue of the fact that reading uh, is disappearing. And he famously uh, wrote the prayer to, concerning God, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And Augustine went on to become a very powerful influence in the early church. Of course, you can't talk about Romans without talking about Martin Luther, uh, a Catholic monk who became ultimately the great uh, captain of the Protestant Reformation. And he was teaching in the university in Gutenberg, Germany. He was teaching uh, a series as a Catholic monk uh, through the book of Romans to his students there. And he came upon chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. And it was like the doctrine of justification or salvation on the basis of faith simply exploded inside of his mind in the way that God does that kind of thing. And you're familiar with that as you, you read the Word of God. And, uh, and then as he uh, began to run down that path, ultimately it led to the Pr uh, Protestant Reformation, uh, which began on October 31st. 1517. Uh, this is the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. We're just a week away or so from the very date at which it began. Interestingly, another famous person in church history, the missionary John Wesley, uh, on May 24th, 1738, is a very, very discouraged missionary at the time. He's in London. He had spent many years uh, is a missionary to the uh, Indians or the Native uh, Americans in, in the United States. And he came back to England. His ministry had amounted to nothing, really. And he came back to uh, England very, very discouraged. And uh, unwillingly, he says in his own way, very unwillingly, he went to a religious meeting in London, and he said there a miracle took place in his life. And he described as he, as he describes it in his journal about a quarter before nine as he's in this meeting. I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did not trust, uh, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And the message that he was listening to on that evening in that church service was a reading of the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And uh, just a few months before, uh, again, as he was uh, 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 returning from his missionary endeavors uh, to, to Native Americans in, in the United States, even though he was unsaved, he wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? And in that uh, church on Addersgate in Street in London, he was born again, and the result was a great revival that God brought through him. It's known as the Wesleyan Revival, one of the greatest revivals in human history. And it all came out of that uh, evening service where God gave him revelation from the book of Romans on salvation uh, by grace, and ultimately it transformed uh, the entire nation of England and beyond. I, I'm hopeful that our study of this book will have... Uh, a very dramatic impact upon each and every one of our lives as we go through it. There's no reason not to expect that. 
and that God will even revolutionize our Christian life and, and give it a depth of, of understanding and understanding not only of the gospel, but the God who's provided uh, the gospel uh, to us and, uh, and that this will happen in my life. It will happen in your life as well. Sidlow Baxter, he's a famous Christian uh, pastor and a theologian and an author. He's now in heaven. And he wrote the chief book of the New Testament is the book of Romans. It deserves to be known by heart, word for word, by every Christian. I don't know that Romans might be the chief book above the gospel according to John or some, some other place, but I certainly agree with him, the elevation that he gives to the book, and I certainly agree with the fact that every Christian should know it by heart and that we should know it verse by verse. Uh, I, and the reason I think it's so important is especially because of an awful lot that I see going on in professing Christianity or Christendom. So much of what is true Christianity as it relates to the Bible is being turned on its head today. Uh, there is so much nonsense going on, and there's a lack of depth of understanding of the Bible and even of salvation, even how to lead another person into salvation, what salvation is, that it isn't just a being saved from something, but also being saved into something else and the depth of, of this thing called salvation. And there are trends today in the United States of America where uh, we see churches, not only Roman Catholicism, but you see Protestant churches that are slowly but surely and now even rapidly uh, drifting into practices and into beliefs uh, that marked the church prior to the Protestant Reformation, prior to an understanding that salvation is on the, on the basis of, of faith and, and uh, grace and received uh, by uh, faith. I think it's helpful, at least it is for me, when you get into something that has the kind of depth and detail that a, the book of Romans has to uh, get a little bit of a bird's eye view of the book, to get a, a macro and a, an overview of it before we get into the micro uh, of the book. Otherwise, a, a book like this with, with so much depth and so much uh, meat, I think it'd be very easy to get lost in it and say, what in the world am I doing here in chapter 3 or chapter 6 or chapter 9, and what does it have to do with the big picture of whatever this uh, book is about? I think in the book of Romans, it's easy uh, to fail to see the forest for the trees. And I think that a simple way to view it is on the basis of five uh, words, the lens of five words. The first word is the word condemnation, uh, which encapsulates Romans chapters 1 through 3. And then justification. In Romans chapter 1 through 3, where Paul reveals the need of every single human being uh, as sinners for God's gospel and for salvation. The second word is justification, which marks chapters 4 and 5. Then sanctification, which marks chapters 6 through 8. And then vindication, which marks chapters 9 through 11, where Paul bring, uh, brings forth God's right to save both Jew and Gentiles uh, any way that he chooses, and to do so in the same way. And then the final word would be application, chapters 12 uh, through 16. When I think of the book of Romans, I don't necessarily think of it in terms of those five words, but 
Those words are helpful for me as I kind of break that down into more bite-sized pieces. When I think of the book of Romans, I think of it on a very individual level, a very personal level, that it's a description of any person that you might run into in the world, you yourself as well. And here, before we come to know Christ, we're walking along in life. We're unsaved. Uh, we don't know God. We haven't put our trust uh, in, uh, in the gospel uh, at, at all. And, and it takes us from that position of once unsaved in our lives, and then it shows how we walk progressively from that place into salvation and then ultimately uh, to Christian uh, maturity. In other words, in chapters 1 through 3, we have a man or a woman who's unsaved and in a condemned condition. In chapter 4 and 5, this person walking through kind of a path through life, chapter 4 and 5, they hear the gospel, and then they receive that gospel, and they're born again. And then in chapters 6 through 8, they begin to grow as Christians. In chapter 6, they fall into the you know, typical kind of, of thing that we all do, spend at least a little bit of time there, where they learn that God's plan of salvation not only provides them with the forgiveness of sin, and not only provide sin past, and then not only provides them with the hope of heaven future, but it also gives us now, in the present tense, the power to live a holy and a godly life, to be able to live free from sin, to live something that used to be called, and I don't hear much about it anymore, a victorious Christian life, that God doesn't just save us and leave us in, in the bondage of the sin that uh, took us captive while we were learning that we're sinners, but this salvation also sets us free from sin presently. And then the same person as he comes uh, to, uh, he or she comes to realize that that there's a victorious Christian life, present tense, this side of heaven found in this gospel. That then you go into chapter 7, and here is the same Christian, ignorant as yet, related to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so they roll up their sleeves, and they're determined in their own strength to now try and live the Christian life that they see described in the Scriptures. And then they fail uh, absolutely miserably. And then all of that prepares them to discover the absolute key to the victorious Christian life, and that is the person of the work in the Holy Spirit. And they wander then into chapter 8 that is filled with a description of him and his place in the Christian life. And then on they go into chapters 9 and 10 in terms of, of the progression where they grow deeper in their understanding of theology and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. And then ultimately into uh, chapters 12 through uh, 16 where we grow into maturity in terms of our obedience to God's word and our faithfulness to his call uh, upon our lives. And so when I look at the book of Romans, I understand, that, and some people can look at it and go, oh, no, this is going to kill me. Uh, I've, I've got ADD, and I've got an attention span uh, of uh, my cat, and uh, there's no way that it, it and it, the, te- the tendency is to look at it as, it's, as if it's a purely theological treatise. And that, uh, you know, every week is going to be a classroom on, on that kind uh, of a level. And it is deeply and wonderfully theological, but I think it's a great mistake uh, to view it as some kind of a dry textbook because it is incredibly personal. 
and incredibly applicational for the child of God who wants to grow into the fullness of the Christian life and to understand it in a way that no other book in the New Testament can quite help us uh, to understand it. And so this morning I want to begin our study by looking at the two verses that really encapsulate uh, the theme of the book, verses 16 and 17, as we have already read them. And the theme of the book is the gospel. It's that simple. Uh, Paul mentions it in the gospel is God's plan of salvation for man. And, uh, and it answers, the book of Romans does this deeply profound question. And the deeply profound question is this, how can a holy God save an unholy person into the holiness of heaven and remain holy in doing so. And that is a tremendous dilemma that God faced in saving you and I. And as we'll see in the book of Romans, it was no small feat that he found an answer to that question. How can a holy God qualify an unholy people for the holiness of heaven and remain holy? In doing so. But I think that behind the the simplicity of uh, receiving the gift of salvation, and and when you, the the receiving of salvation from God on an individual level, those of you who are Christians, you understand it. It was as simple as, as simple could be. We became Christians by just simply trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. On the man's side of this, it's as easy as falling off of a log almost. It's so easy. But there's a God side to this salvation that is immense. It's like the iceberg that's underneath the ocean that is so huge, so much larger than the little thing that is present. And the salvation that is offered so simply to us is only simple for us because of the immense work, the gigantic work that God has done, the mountain uh, of of work that is behind the making of the gospel uh, simple enough for us to understand as a child and then to receive as a gift. When we look through the book of Romans, for me it won't be simply to look at the various doctrines of the book, but to see the doctrines of the book, but to realize there's a God behind those doctrines. There's a God behind that gospel. There's a heart behind that gospel. There is the wisdom of God. There is the power uh, of God. There is the love of God behind every single thing that we're going to. It's a revelation of God in a way that Maybe most of the books of the New Testament don't quite reveal uh, him. And so there is this profound depth to our salvation on the God side of all of it, again, that allows it to be simple for us. And the book of Romans brings all of that out. So again, don't view the book as merely this thing that is just uh, this treatise on uh, big Greek words and even big English words that I uh, will never hope to be able to understand. It's nothing of the sort. It is a revelation of God. It is a revelation of the awesomeness uh, of God. Again, his wisdom, his power, his love, his holiness. And I think that we will never appreciate those things concerning God until we examine those and see them revealed as they are in the book of Romans. 
The theme of the book, as I said, is the gospel. And we see it mentioned in verse uh, four times in this opening introduction to the letter, which constitutes verses 1 through 17. We'll get back to the other verses in the next coming uh, weeks. But it's mentioned in verse 1, excuse me, again in verse 9, then in verse 15 and verse 16. And Paul introduces the word gospel. He introduces the gospel in verse 1, but then he enlarges upon it significantly here in verses 16 and, and 17. And Paul then spends the rest of the book enlarging on this thing called the gospel. But here he begins in these two verses by giving us an encapsulation of it. The word gospel means good news. In fact, it's stronger than that. Uh, it means a great uh, news, and it is the great news of God's salva- provision of salvation to sinful man, to you, to me as sinful human beings, and his provision for us of the forgiveness of our past sins, and then the present provision of the power to live a godly life. And then further, reaching out into infinity before us, eternity, the provision of everlasting life in God's presence in heaven when this life is complete. The most famous description of the gospel. The gospel overwhelms our past. It overwhelms our present. It overwhelms our future with God and with the power of God and the love of God. I think the most famous description of the gospel is found in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. I'll read it for you. Paul said, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus' death upon the cross paid the price required for the forgiveness of our sins. He was and is the propitiation. That's the word. He, that death upon the cross is the full and satisfying payment and the only full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of the world's sins or an individual's uh, sins. And then we're told in the gospel that he was buried as a proof of his death, but then further that he rose again as a demonstration of his victory over death and over sin and over hell. And that resurrection from the dead was a witness to the fact that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son for the forgiveness of our sins. And the resurrection of Jesus all through human history, now 2,000 years ago, reaching right into this room and into your heart, And one of the things that it communicates to us as we sit here this morning is that God's, the resurrection of Christ is God's way of confirming to us that our faith in Jesus for all of this in terms of our past and our present and our future is very well placed. You notice that when he describes the gospel in verse 16, he doesn't merely say the gospel. There's two very important words that are added to it. He refers to it as the gospel of Christ because it is completely founded upon Jesus Christ. It is completely founded upon his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
Next, you notice in verse 16 that Paul declares that the gospel to be the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God to provide mankind uh, with salvation. In other words, everything the gospel promises to us, everything the gospel promises to us in completely overwhelming our past, our present, and our future, God instantly accomplishes that in our lives the moment we trust in Jesus for salvation. Again, this isn't merely a theological or a philosophical uh, discussion that is happening here, a religious discussion. Here, Paul describes the effect of the gospel on any person who will put their trust in it. It is the power of God unto salvation. That word power, and you might circle it, at least in your mind, and maybe even in your Bible, there in verse 16. It is the Greek word dunamis, and we get our English words dynamo, dynamite, dynamic from uh, that Greek word. In other words, when a person trusts in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins, the dunamis, the dynamic, the dynamo uh, power of God it exerts itself instantly in that person, and they're born again in that moment, and they are saved. And in an instant in time, when a person comes to faith in Christ, it's like a nuclear bomb going off spiritually in terms of power in a person's life. That person is changed instantly. Their sins in that moment in time are forgiven and forgotten by God, no matter how many the sins were, no matter what form the sins took, no matter how many years we invested in those sins, that takes power, and it takes power that comes from God to free me of my sin and the dopey life that I lived before I gave my life to Christ, and I know you're no different than me. It's the power of God to forgive us of our sins and to provide us with that forgiveness and then to separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. How can you, how can I in my mind even begin to understand what kind of power is required in the spiritual realm to accomplish that in an individual life. And yet the gospel has the power to do it concerning sin past. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, the bomb goes off in terms of our life, and the person who trusts in Christ instantly becomes a new creation. A new nature is put into our lives. And here we have is, is even more strongly than what we longed for in terms of sin and sin that took us into bondage. Now we have a desire for the things of God. Did that come from you? Did that come from a book? Did that come from a, a counseling session? No, it came from God who brought it in, into our lives, a desire now to live an entirely different life. And why? Because an entirely new nature was brought into our lives, the miracle of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. And then with the salvation, all of this happening instantly, not just related to our past, not just related to our present, but then everlasting life imparted to us at that moment. 
and you just stop for a moment and just think about the kind of power that is required for that to happen in the physical realm and the spiritual realm concerning one human being to say nothing of uh, hundreds of millions of people who have come to Christ to have all of that happen within their lives. And Paul knew something about it when he wrote the book of Romans. He'd experienced it. Here is this madman, this savage, hiding behind religious robes and religion, and he is meeting out all kinds of venom against anyone who believes anything uh, different than what he believes. And he's doing it all in the name of God. This is the person that he was, self-righteous, so misguided, bloodthirsty, imprisoning men and women, and then voting for the death of others. This was Paul on the road to Damascus. And as he's making his way there to the city of Damascus, God knocks him off of his high horse. And here he is with all of the advantages that he had, the intellect that he had, the brilliance, the wealth, the position, the power, the religion, all of it. But when he came to realize that the gospel was true and he trusted in Jesus right there on the spot, it was like a bomb went off inside of the Apostle Paul. It was like nothing he had ever discovered in what the Pharisees had turned Judaism into, nothing he had ever discovered within, uh, within uh, religion or any other area within his life. And he knew that God had done this in him. And if God had done it in him, he would do it in anyone. And I'll tell you, I'm excited to talk about this this morning and I'm not going to talk about it like a librarian, because as we look at this, as we're looking at here this morning in terms of the power of God, I can testify to it as well in my own life. And what has happened in my life is not because of a God gene or that I read some good Christian books or, uh, you know, I'm a, a, a super self-disciplined guy or something like that. When I got saved, a miracle occurred. The power of God unto salvation occurred. And I know what is true of me is true of you as well. There is no other explanation for the changes that occurred in our life from that moment forward than that there is power in that gospel. And not only power in terms of being freed from sin and freed from wickedness and being, uh, becoming more holy, but then also receiving peace that we've never known before, a hope we've never known before, a joy that we've never known before, a love that we've never known before, before a fulfillment and satisfaction that we had never known before and it it nothing short of the power of god can produce even one christian let alone a room full of christians and a world full of christians and a history full of christians and paul remember he writes this letter to christians in rome the whole context is the roman uh, empire and Rome possessed tremendous power, and the empire would live in in, in greatness and then in, in fading for a total of fifteen hundred years. That's a long time for something to exist. 
And at the time in which Paul writes this letter, Paul was in the early stages of uh, the peak of, uh, of Rome in many ways, the early stages of two centuries of unprecedented political uh, stability and prosperity known as the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. And yet as one Roman philosopher and statesman alive at the time that Paul wrote this letter, Living in Rome, he declared the city of Rome to be a cesspool of iniquity. And not long after this, the Roman poet Juvenal, he called Rome a filthy sewer into which the dregs of the entire empire flow. And before the Romans who ruled the world, the Greeks ruled the world, not only in terms of military power, but in terms of, of philosophy and so forth. But for all of the power of both Greek and uh, Greece and Rome, if you were to take all of their power and put it together, all of that power could not wash a single soul of their sins. It could not make a new creation out of a single human being. It could not provide to a single individual the confidence and the hope of heaven. It takes real power to do that. And only God, the God of the Bible, the true and the living God, possesses that power. And it's no wonder that Paul declared in this regard that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it alone is the power of God to salvation. The fact of the matter is, for any honest person who knows anything about the last 2,000 years of history, the gospel is the greatest change agent in the history of mankind. And nobody can debate that. The sheer number of people that have been changed and had things brought into their life that come from God and can only be imparted by God. And I tell you this morning, if you're not a Christian yet and you're following with me this far in the sermon, if you want change in your life, real change, not to just dabble around about the edges, but you like Augustine wake up and you say, how did I become this person? How did I get into bondage with this? What have I done with my reputation? I don't want to live this kind of a life anymore, and you want freedom from sin, to live a holy life. You want to know what it is to receive love and to impart love to other people. You want to know what joy feels like and what peace feels like and what hope feels like and what satisfaction, and satisfaction is a wonderful thing to feel in life. This is the answer. It is faith in Christ. It is the gospel, and it is the only answer. Here in verse 16, helpfully, and I think wonderfully, we have the scope of the gospel described. It's for everyone who believes, whether they be a Jew or Gentile. In other words, this gospel provides salvation to anyone who desires it uh, because there isn't a single person in the world who isn't either a Jew or a Gentile. It, it encapsulates every single person in the world. And it's available to everyone uh, in the world, this gospel and this spiritual birth that it brings. And this is why, as Paul writes here, as he does in verse 16, why it is, it is absolutely wrong and, and simply ignorant for anyone to blame God for their own eternal destination or that of others. 
And very often, and I, I don't say this to poke somebody in the eye, but just to give you something to think about if this is something that you've hidden behind for some period of time. But you'll hear people level this accusation or complaint against Christianity. I simply cannot believe in a God who would throw people into hell for eternity. And that, that is a dangerous ignorance uh, related to uh, the Scriptures and a complete understanding of God and the issue. God has made his desire that every single human being would be saved and in relationship with him and spend eternity with him. He has made that desire known to the entire world. First of all, in the sending of his very son to provide salvation and the gospel. But he makes his will known elsewhere in his scriptures. Peter wrote in his second epistle, chapter 3, concerning God, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He desires every human being to be saved, but he will not force a person to be saved. In the Old Testament, prophet Ezekiel revealing the heart of God. Uh, Ezekiel wrote, say to them, and here he is uh, quoting the Lord, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And then the pleading of God Almighty in the passage, he says, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Jesus himself taught that when a person, every individual, any individual, puts their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, that all of heaven explodes into joy every single time that event occurs. And if you're not yet a Christian this morning, why not let those angels in heaven explode into celebration with all of heaven as well? over your salvation and being brought into the kingdom of God. It's important to realize that while God makes it clear that each of us needs to be saved, that at the same time he will never force a person uh, to be saved. And in point of fact, on the day of judgment, God uh, doesn't send anyone to hell. By the time a person stands before Jesus at that great white throne judgment, every person will have uh, determined our own uh, eternal destination by that time, and he simply confirms our desires on the issue, the reservations that we have made. The fact of the matter is, is that eternal judgment, because of what God has done with the gospel, is simply the most avoidable thing in all of life. And to blame God for the fact that people end up in hell in judgment is just uh, to engage in what is on an epidemic level in the United States of America. It is pure blame shifting. It is moving away from personal responsibility. And while you can play that game in the United States of America right now, especially in our universities, it won't hold water before God. Uh, but we need to wake up to the fact this isn't a game. Life isn't a game that we're playing. Uh, we're, played, uh, uh, we're living this life uh, before God. And to think that, uh, that it, somehow that God is the one that's responsible for people's eternal destinations, it's a complete self-deception. Notice, too, 
in verse 17, the God side to our salvation. He declares the salvation to be the righteousness of God. And this is very, very important uh, to understand. Now, just regroup a little bit with me. I'd I'd have you do a Jericho march, uh, but I'm running out of time for that. But this is very significant, what he uh, lays out here, because it gives us a glimpse into the God side of our salvation. We just look at it, and the guy comes up to us on the street, and he hands us a tract of the four spiritual laws, or he begins to speak to us about, listen, uh, uh, you know, you are a sinner, and this has separated you from God, and if you trust in Jesus, and so forth. And it looks like, it's like the simplest thing of all that they're presenting. That's the man's side of it. But Romans gives us, in chapter, verse 17 gives us a, a, a look at the God side of our salvation. What was required in order to provide it to us? And as I've said, to make it simple for us uh, when, when he did. And, and it gives us that glimpse into the God side of our salvation. And he, Paul tells us here that it reveals to us the challenge that God faced in providing us as sinful people with a gospel, to provide us with good news in the light of our sinful condition. And our sin had separated us from uh, heaven. It disqualified us for heaven. And again, we come back to the challenge that God faced in saving us as sinners, as those whose sins have completely disqualified us from heaven. And again, the question is, how can a holy God qualify an unholy people for a holy heaven and remain holy in doing so. And that's a lot more tricky than most of us realize. The problem that God faced in his desire to save us as sinners is that the righteousness, the rightness, the right-onness of God, that is that is required for heaven is perfection. I'm fond of quoting because I can't find a better quote. If you can supply one to me, I'll freshen up uh, my quote giving. But on this issue, an old Puritan uh, quaintly put it and perfectly put it. He said, the righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. You got that? And it's a perfect encapsulation of it. The translation is this. You're thankful for a translation, aren't you? The translation is that God cannot lower the standard of perfection or he would not be a righteous God. That's the pickle that he found himself in, in saving us. The problem, God declares each of us to be guilty of sin. Each of us has been less than perfect. Each of us has broken God's laws, and thus we have disqualified ourselves from ever getting into heaven based upon our own merit or our own hard work or human efforts. As Paul will declare in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the Bible declares further than that. It declares that there's a penalty that must be paid for our sin. That just as there are penalties for breaking the law in a city or in a state or in a nation, there is also a penalty uh, for, uh, in the universe for breaking God's law in his creation. 
because God is perfectly holy and just. Every violation of his law in this universe and wherever we live in this thing called planet Earth, we live in his living room. We're not very far from him. And, and so he has laws that supersede all other laws. And so the, when the, the, every violation of his law, even if we keep all of the laws of man, they must be punished. And if he did not punish those who break his laws, if he just kind of did what our laws are doing more and more in the United States, just casually overlooking or ignoring laws and so forth, and, and if he began to do that or he began to tolerate sin or to accommodate uh, sin and, and so forth, then he wouldn't be holy and he wouldn't be just. And so that's the dilemma that he faces there's only one solution to the dilemma, and God was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. Because it is in that snapshot, and all of the thousand years, thousands of years of, of human history, it is there in that place that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness, his perfect righteousness, to be put to our account as we would put our faith in him, providing us with the righteousness, the perfect righteousness that is required for heaven. We'll talk about that more another time. And it allows God to make us righteous, and yet at the same time, not dismiss or to ignore the seriousness of our sin. And Paul put it this way when he wrote to the church at Corinth. And he, that is the Father, made him that is Jesus, who knew no sin, that's significant, to become sin on that cross, that you and I might become the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God in him. As we put our faith in Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus is put to our account and it qualifies us for glory. No one can look at Jesus hanging upon that cross 2,000 years ago and ever declare that God has a casual attitude towards sin or that he doesn't understand the seriousness of sin or that he hasn't made the seriousness of sin clear to even us. Nobody can do that. And it's only by providing mankind with salvation through Jesus' death upon the cross that allows God to remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man. And he brings it out a little bit more further in chapter uh, 3. And it's only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly holy God to save ungodly sinners and still remain just in doing so. And I say hallelujah for that. I say praise the Lord. I knew I was a sinner when I came to Christ. I knew I was a sinner up and down and back and forth, as far back as I could ever uh, look or remember or any of that. And I tell you, as God is my witness, when I ultimately uh, committed my life to the Lord and I knew at the end of my particular search, I wanted to find a God at the end of that search, but I wanted to find a God who was nothing like me, 
and nothing like anyone I had ever known, as wonderful as some of them were, and I wanted them to be nothing like mankind that I saw all around me. I was hopeful at the end of that search I would find a God who was completely different from me, completely different from us, holy, just, righteous, completely different from the world that I lived in. And I found him in the God of the Bible, and so did you. And as God is my witness, if my salvation, my eternity, my being in heaven, the forgiveness of my sins required God to change from being the God that he is in order to save me, I would say, leave me unsaved because sin has already ruined the earth. I'm not interested in it ruining the one thing it hasn't ruined yet, and that is heaven, and that is God. And we found a God who has found a way to maintain the perfection and the holiness of heaven and still save us. And it's very, very important, and I think most of us are very aware that the gospel is an expression of God's love. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But here we learn something further, and I think this is completely lost upon the average Christian. And where it affects us is in our worship of the Lord. A loss of the fear of God, an awe of God, a reverence of God. It's important to learn further what Paul reveals to us here in verse 17, and that is this salvation is also an, an expression of his righteousness. And we'll talk more about what uniquely qualified Jesus to provide this another time. And how is salvation, as we close here, received, we're told in verse 17, by faith. And when a person understands all of this, the greatest question then becomes, how can I make that gospel, that good, that great news? How can I, mine, how can I have my past, my present, my future completely overwhelmed in the way that you uh, describe? How do I make that my own? And the answer, as he describes there in verse 16, is by simply believing, by by trusting. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And this believing is more than just believing all of this to be uh, true. Uh, It is that, but it is also, it is an act of my will where I take and I say, I believe all of this to be true. And now I actively, as an act of my will, put my trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection this morning for the forgiveness of my sins. And to say to God, I believe that Jesus is the Savior and that that is the salvation that pleases uh, you, and so I put my trust in him and in that gospel. And I trust in it because you have uh, said it. And when he talks about this salvation being from faith to faith there in verse 17, it simply means that salvation is totally of faith. It is from, uh, by faith from beginning to end. And Paul closes that uh, verse 17 uh, with the, the declaration that all of this is in perf- perfect agreement uh, with the Old Testament scriptures and qu- quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. That concerning salvation, uh, salvation concerning any issue in life, 
uh, whether what Habakkuk was facing uh, with God or what we face in terms of sinners in need of everlasting life, all salvation is found by trusting in God's word and his revelation on whatever that particular issue is. And if you sit here this morning and you're not a Christian and you've listened all the way through, I congratulate you. Sincerely, I congratulate you. The message of the gospel that God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's offer to you. And it is the greatest invitation and the greatest series of words that you will ever hear in your life. And I don't doubt that God created us with ears if for no other reason than to give us the capacity to one day hear that invitation. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service here. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin this life that we've just scratched the surface on this morning, but all of it ready to explode in power within your life. And for those of us who are saved this morning, for us just to leave this morning marveling at the provision of the gospel to mankind and to us, to be in awe in a fresh way that what was required for you and I to enjoy the quality of life that we do and the freedom from the guilt of sin and the confidence of heaven all the way out uh, before us, what was involved in all of it, the wisdom, the power, the love of God behind that provision and one of the things that, as we look at the book of Romans, and this morning as we look at it, and I know I'm out of time, but here I've been 53 minutes. That's a long time for a Sunday morning service. I don't want any amens out of that, but it is. You say, what does this have to do with my relationship with God? When we understand these things about God and really understand them, it produces a worship and an awe in our lives that comes no other way. And then when the worship team comes out and leads us in worship concerning Calvary and heaven and the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of God and praise and worship being directed to God and all of a sudden this is exploding out of our heart and we say, I don't know where that came from. It certainly had nothing to do with that pastor that spent 53 minutes talking about I don't know what, but it did. Because worship has to come out of something. And it has to come out of what we know about God and, and how well we know him. And so this is a multifaceted thing that happens, this understanding of the book of Romans and our little uh, touching upon it here this morning. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we, you've heard all the words that have been spoken, and we are humbled. We are absolutely humbled at your provision for us, that there was a way for us to leave one life and come into another life, Lord, 
and then define that salvation wasn't just the leaving the one, but the coming into something that we never could have dreamt was possible. And we thank you from this place this morning for your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. We bless you for our salvation. We bless you for finding a way, an enormous sacrifice on your part and on Jesus' part for us to be saved. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom and we thank you for the love and the power and the righteousness behind all of it. We bless you this morning and we bless you in Jesus' name, amen.